This is The Kicker, CJR's podcast about all things media. I'm Pete Vernon. Two topics for you this week. Later, we'll dive into the coverage of Christine Blasey Ford and Brett Kavanaugh. My colleagues Noska Renner and Alex Neeson wrote a piece raising ethical questions about the media's treatment of Dr. Ford, and they'll join me to discuss those issues. But first, Wednesday morning's New York Times contains a 14,000-word story stretching across nine pages of the paper, authoritatively answering a single question. What's the actual truth about how Donald Trump got rich? David Barstow, Sue Craig, and Russ Butner spent 18 months investigating that question, and their conclusion, presented in painstaking detail, boils down to one major source of the president's wealth, his father. The Times reports that Trump and his siblings engaged in shady business dealings, including outright tax fraud, in order to transfer much of the fortune their father, the legendary New York construction mogul Fred Trump, had built, and to disperse it to Donald and his siblings. To discuss that report, I'm joined by David K. Johnston, a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter, editor-in-chief of DCReport.org, longtime Trump chronicler, and, as it turns out, the man at least partially responsible for getting this New York Times investigation started. David, thanks so much for taking the time. Well, happy to be with you. So I want to begin back in March of 2017 when you landed a scoop that the reporters on this Times story said helped kickstart their own reporting. What did the two pages of Trump tax returns you unearthed show exactly? Well, the return, which I believe Donald sent to me or had sent to me, showed he had a tremendous income in 2005, $153 million, although he later went on CNN and said it was 250. And it also showed that he seemed to pay a lot of taxes that year, $36 million. Um, What I don't think Uh, Donald expected was that I would point out to readers that his regular income tax rate was less than three and a half percent and that the 31 million of the 36 million was a tax called the AMT, alternative minimum tax, that he could get refunded the next year or the next couple of years. Three and a half percent is an important number. The bottom half of American taxpayers that year paid a little more than three and a half percent of their income in federal income tax on average. Donald paid a little less in regular income tax. The poorest half of Americans' income averaged $300 a week. Donald averaged almost $3 million a week, and yet he was more lightly taxed. Hmm. And so that, as the reporters on this Time story said, sort of got them thinking because they, Sue Craig specifically, had received three pages of an earlier tax return that showed him taking a huge loss. Well, of three, of three state returns, which turned out to be very important, uh, New Jersey, Connecticut, and New York, because those three returns put together with the return I got, I was able to establish that Donald Trump had, in fact, made use, as we, I had long believed, of a tax shelter so odious that when the Republicans in Congress learned about it, they literally got a law passed and signed by the president in a matter of weeks. And so 18 months later, we've got this in-depth expose by the Times. You called it masterful uh, in your response to the piece. So what in your mind, as someone who's been digging into Trump's business dealings for years, is the biggest takeaway from the piece? Well, because they have this uh, 100,000 pages of documents, including 200 Fred Trump tax returns and ledgers and canceled checks and invoices, the Times is able to establish beyond any reasonable doubt that the Trump family in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s was engaged in massive, intentional, planned, calculated tax fraud. 
there were 295 different ways that money flowed untaxed from Fred Trump to his children. Uh, the, there was an invoicing scheme that was part of this that inflated the amount the, the Trumps were able to take as a tax deduction by almost half, and the inflated figures also allowed them to justify rent increases on poor people in rent-controlled apartments owned by the Trump organization. So they got it going both directions um, uh, as a result of that. And the, the documentation is just so extensive. Uh, the denials by the White House, which are really sort of classic non-denials. Denials. It's an old story. We all know this. No, we don't. I've spent years on this. Tim O'Brien, uh, the historian Gwenda Blair, the late Wayne Barrett, we've all had little pieces of this. This is light years beyond where we ever got. Yeah, and it seems like to get that far, the Times gave these three reporters a pretty long leash to hole up and report, focus on this story. Well, this is more than five years of reporting time. Right. Think about that. More than five, it's the equivalent of if I had spent five years on a single story, and a lot of it was computer-assisted reporting by Russ Butner, where they had to create spreadsheets and do analysis. And one of the th- reasons I call this masterful is that every single accounting and tax issue, arcane as they are, they got right. There's one thing I went, nope, 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 you don't know, there's this rule or there's that. They got it all right. That's something I wanted to ask you about, again, because of your experience on this. For those of us who don't have a background in tax code and financial forensics, <laughs> yeah. can you can you explain just what sort of work goes into an article, both in terms of the documents gathered and the way you translate that arcane language into plain English? Well, first of all, getting the New York Times to say the sitting president engaged in outright fraud uh, involved unbelievable hoops that you had to jump through. Um, And luckily, this story doesn't show evidence of what is called in the paper committee editing, which has uh, damaged, if not destroyed, some of the best things the Times ever done. uh, David Barstow and and Suzanne Craig were able to, I think, hold off the committee, although I don't literally know that. Um, What they have to do is you have all these documents. What do they mean? You go to people who understand these various things. Bit by bit, they start to explain this to you, and you're getting an education in money flows, valuations, specific tax rules, in who signs what document. Uh, A lot of this was invoicing schemes, which are very common, where you essentially are keeping two sets of books. And uh, so – an enormous amount of great care went into this, and that they were able to establish 295 streams of untaxed income tells you how thoroughly diligent they were uh, in the work that's doing. Now, I, I don't expect ordinary voters to be particularly responsive to this, but anybody in law enforcement, anybody among the members of Congress who are guided by principles and respect for the rule of law, knows that this is an absolutely devastating report, even though the the documents end uh, with some minor exceptions basically at the year 2000. As you mentioned, the documents do end around 2000 or just after. What comes next? What is the thing that you and all of these reporters who have spent years digging into Trump's business background, what questions are still out there that you think should be focused on and need to be answered? Well, first and foremost... Uh, we need to have a Congress that will do its duty under the Constitution of oversight. 
Congress has the right to obtain and to make public Donald Trump's tax returns. They can make your return public if they, if they want. And if we have a change in control of the House or Senate, I expect there will be a move right away to obtain those returns, to hold hearings on them, to investigate them, uh, so that we know what's going on currently. Secondly, well, the statute of limitations for criminal prosecution is over. Uh, the crimes that were committed, the Trumps get to get away with. There is no civil limitation. That means that the state of New York, whose tax law is essentially identical to the federal government, and the federal government can both pursue Donald Trump, his sister, who is a federal appeals court judge, and the two other living Trump siblings for uh, payment of the taxes all the way back to the 1950s, along with penalties and interest. And I believe they absolutely should do so, particularly given all the lies that Donald Trump has been telling. Um, now, the state of New York, which my organization, D.C. Report, starting on June 15th, called on to open a state criminal investigation, and which happened. The, the governor has to grant directly or indirectly authority for the attorney general to have a criminal investigation. They had already opened one into the Donald J. Trump Foundation, which Trump used as a personal cookie jar to pay his own bills, buy portraits of himself and other uh, illegal activities. Every single act of what's called self-dealing like that creates income for Donald Trump. And if he did not report that income, those are criminal acts. Uh, so, And the State Department of Taxation said after the New York Times report that they are actively looking into what the Times reported. Now, there's one more element to this that's very important. Pending before the Supreme Court is a case called Gamble. And the proposition of that case is that a pardon by the President of the United States should apply to state crimes as well as federal crimes. Um, I think we can reasonably predict that if Brett Kavanaugh is approved of the Supreme Court, he, with his expansive view of executive power, would grant the President of the United States a pardon power for state-level crimes. That would be a horrible, horrible thing to happen to our republic and to the rule of law if such became the ruling of the Supreme Court. So this is obviously a, a really detailed and impressive report from The Times. And there have been other pieces of deep reporting. You mentioned the Trump Foundation, David Farenthold at The Washington Post, obviously won a Pulitzer for his work there. But before Trump became a presidential candidate, uh, aside from some of the reporters you mentioned, like Wayne Barrett, Gwenda Blair, Timothy O'Brien, and yourself, there wasn't a lot of critical, deep reporting on Donald Trump. It was Trump the celebrity, Trump the sensational figure. How much of Trump's image is the press responsible for, this great deal-maker and self-made billionaire? That's a great question. Donald Trump's entire career is based on fake news that Donald Trump himself put out there. You know, he claimed to be the biggest developer in New York. Absolute nonsense. Uh, he got national news coverage in 1990 that he was supposedly having affairs with uh, Madonna, the actress Kim Basinger, and Carla Bruni, later the First Lady of France. Now, first of all, billionaire has girlfriend or mistress. Uh, you're surprised? But why would NBC News have reported that as a national news story? And uh, gullible reporters, reporters who took tips, especially reporters at the New York Post, which was Trump's favorite place to plant something, so that then legitimate news organizations would refer to that story, even though it was untrue. 
uh, bear a heavy burden here. And during the campaign, there was no really serious vetting of Donald Trump. Uh, much as I love the New York Times and I'm proud that I worked there, in that campaign, the words Donald Trump and mafia appeared four times in 16 months, all of them in passing, two of them on the editorial page. Uh, I tried and tried and tried to get my peers to look into Donald Trump's involvement with the major cocaine trafficker, um, Joe Wexelbaum, who I think he was in business with. And I've uh, you know, said, gee, Donald, sue me if you think I just slandered you. Um, and very many other activities that go to the fact that Donald Trump, in my view, is a world-class career criminal, the third-generation head of a white-collar crime family. And the failure to report this should bother every journalist, and editors should ask themselves why they have politics reporters rather than investigative reporters looking into candidates for president of the United States. Well, as you wrote at DC Report today, uh, he may have been a crappy businessman, but a great con artist. Is that an appropriate description? World, the greatest con artist in the history of the world. He conned his way all the way into the White House, and he still has lots of people who believe he's a demigod, not a demagogue, a demigod, that he's a modern Midas, and it's just not true. As a candidate, you know, Trump claimed to be worth more than $10 billion dollars. Uh, Forbes magazine uh, just knocked him down 11 notches, but they say he's worth over $3 billion. That's very curious because Donald Trump's disclosure form filed after he became president. She had to file under penalty of perjury, $1.4 billion, and it has a lot of inflated numbers and doesn't show all his debt. So why is anybody quoting Forbes uh, that he's worth $3 billion when Trump's, by Trump's own account, he's worth less than half that? Well, it sounds like there's more digging to do. Uh, David K. Johnson, I know you have to get to some TV hits, so thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you. Turning now to our second topic. We recorded last week's podcast before Christine Blasey Ford and Brett Kavanaugh testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Since then, a lot has happened. The investigation into Kavanaugh's past is ongoing, but we wanted to dive into the media's role in this whole saga. With me to do that, I have two of my colleagues, CJR Digital Editor Noska Renner. Noska, good to have you down here. Hello, Pete. And CJR Senior Staff Writer Alex Neeson. Alex, good to have you back. Reporting for duty. So shortly after Dr. Ford finished testifying, you two authored a piece titled The Media Bullying of Christine Blasey Ford. What, Noska, was the thrust of that argument? So we were all sitting around the newsroom pretty much wrapped by her testimony. I mean, we, we brought in a TV cart and we were all sitting extremely close to it. And I was blown away by um, her testimony for a number of reasons. But the thing that was really surprising to me was the fact that she spent the time in the whatever eight minutes that she had to specifically call out some of what had happened to her over the summer. And she said, actually, that the over the summer, it was the worst period of her life besides directly following her attack um, by Kavanaugh. And she blamed it partially on reporters. I mean, what she said was, look, like, I'm a normal citizen. I had this thing to say. I really struggled with whether or not to bring it to the table. I emailed the post anonymously. 
I emailed Feinstein's office, or sorry, I actually don't know if it was an email or a written letter, but she got in touch with both Feinstein's office and with the Post, and that she had no interest in being a media figure. And then something happened where the Post wasn't really looking into it, and Feinstein shared the letter with the other members of the committee, but um, it wasn't really getting as much attention as um, it, it ended up getting in the end because she wasn't public. So she basically talks about how she wanted to just be a private citizen coming forward, but through the efforts of reporters was sort of dragged into the spotlight. Yeah, I have the quote from her testimony here where she said, quote, Reporters appeared at my home and at my job demanding information about this letter, including in the presence of my graduate students. They called my boss and coworkers and left me many messages, making it clear that my name would inevitably be released to the media. Yeah, and I should say that, Alex, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but we found out that um, the, the Post story confirms that a BuzzFeed reporter showed up at one of her classes and approached her in the context of like students coming up to her and asking questions. But I still haven't confirmed that anybody went to her house. But regardless, it, it's it's sort of one of these reporting tactics that like everybody tells you to knock on doors when you're a baby student. And uh, in this context, it forced somebody to come and go through the the hardest you know, few hours of her life. I don't want to speculate on the the sources that BuzzFeed or other outlets who approached Dr. Ford had, but I'm, I'm more interested in the ethical question behind this. Um, something else that you write sort of in conclusion in your piece is that, quote, journalists spend much of our professional lives wading through the justifications for our subject's behavior and asking whether it has crossed an ethical line. This hearing shows the urgent need for us to examine our own. So, Alex, what is the ethical line that you feel like this specific case brings up? I mean, this whole thing, this whole evaluation of Kavanaugh's behavior when he was in high school is exactly that. It's a it's a question of what were was there a line crossed um, and and what to do about it now, 30 years later for reporters, I think by Ford's telling this was, you know, being public about her about what happened to her was something that she it seems from the get from the get go was very firm in like not wanting to be public and so she wanted the people who needed to know um, to have this information but she was disinterested in talking about it uh, you know on TV which is ultimately what she ended up doing so I think for reporters where we draw the line in the sand between like okay this is a Supreme Court nominee. Um, And our job is to vet allegations. And so to do that, we have to talk to the person who makes the the allegation. And I think that the the questionable part becomes like, okay, so here's a person who says that she has been uh, sexually assaulted um, and is not public and says that she doesn't want to be public. And so we want her to be public because that means that we can report the story out. And so how far do we push this person to talk about their trauma and who does it serve? Is this really about us and wanting to get the story? Is it about this person? Is it about like the union? I think that that's where the or discrediting the question comes. Kavanaugh. Right, right. I would also add that I find a really helpful point of comparison to be coverage of of mass shootings and coverage of entire towns that are sort of in a state of trauma. Last year we covered 
uh, the shooting in Sutherland Springs. And there was a lot of self-reflection on the part of journalists after that about interviewing and re-interviewing and knocking on the doors repeatedly of people who really needed to process what had happened to them and that the reporters were just being too aggressive individually and also just the sheer number of reporters that were asking them questions. Like now we're living in an age where every news outlet has to report out everything. So <laughs> they had to repeat their story again and again. And it, it seemed so obvious in that case to think about how do you treat those subjects well. And I think we wanted to extend that logic to victims of sexual harassment. Yeah, I mean, I'm really interested in this topic, not just, as you said, in the case of Dr. Ford and Brett Kavanaugh, but this is an issue that troubles all reporters, at least at some point during their journalistic careers. Janet Malcolm famously wrote that every journalist who is not too stupid or too full of himself to notice what is going on knows that what he does is morally indefensible, right? Like, our job is often to go to the doors of murder victims' families and ask them about their loved one who's been killed. It's to go to hurricane disaster areas and shove a camera in people's faces on the worst day of their lives. And that's part of the job that, yes, is morally indefensible, but it also brings attention. I, I was just talking to some high school students about Puerto Rico coverage and showed a clip of the week after the hurricane hit. And one of the things they said was, it's so mean how they keep showing these people crying. That's, a, that's invasion of privacy. And I was like, well, yes, I, I agree. It's uncomfortable to watch, but it's also the only way we learn about what's going on. I think part of this is about interrogating journalist uh, concept of being entitled to information. So a lot of our job is that we walk into things assuming that we're entitled to information. And sometimes that's very true. So when we're reporting on things like nominees for the Supreme Court, when we report on government agencies, public agencies, there is a sort of socially, there's a social contract that says the public and thereby us, representatives of the public, are entitled to this information. When we're covering things like sexual assault, like Sutherland Springs, when things like Parkland, we saw this again with Parkland when reporters showed up in Florida after that shooting. Um, and now we're saying, and, and so now the question becomes about, okay, so perhaps we're entitled to know that a shooting took place in a place, but are we entitled to understand that via the pain of the people who experienced it? So now these are private experiences, and when we show up and start knocking on doors and asking questions, um, we're, what we communicate to those people is that your private experience is public information, or we want to make mm -hmm. it publication, public information. And so you know we behave in a way that signals to people that we feel like we're entitled to that. And I think that what I hoped to do with this piece is to say that sometimes we have to really look closely at whether or not we're entitled to these things, even if it makes even if it furthers a story. And in this case, it's the story of this man who's nominated for a lifetime appointment on our highest court. Um, I think sometimes that we really have to take a step back and look at, like, are we really entitled to the hearing about this experience at the level of detail that we've been taught we are? I totally agree with the thing you just said about telling stories via victims' experience, I think that that is a really interesting thing to interrogate. I kind of don't think that this story shouldn't have been done. Like, that wasn't the point to me. I think that it would be difficult as a reporter at BuzzFeed to get that name and 
to know where to find her and to not go. And I, I think that that would have been hiding a story. So I, it's like this, this careful line to walk between, you know, telling the story in a, in a way that isn't uh, exploitative of the source mm-hmm. and doing the story that is sort of mandated by your profession. So on some level, you're just saying, don't be an asshole. Yeah. But as we know, journalists are often assholes. (laughs) (laughs) And some of this, I think, is like what you mentioned earlier about just it's about volume. Um, So she she approached The Washington Post initially. And then ultimately, I think it was Emma Brown at The Washington Post who wrote that story. And she said in her testimony that she had cultivated a level of trust with this reporter. Um, And I think that that's fine. And, And yeah, it's difficult to learn of something and like to figure out. Um, how far do I push? Um, I think when you zoom out a little bit, though, and look at what Ford described as a number of reporters coming at her and asking sort of the same questions, then that's where it starts. That's where we start to look kind of like a mob. um, And that's where it starts to feel inappropriate. So individually for a single reporter to build trust with a source who perhaps is on the fence about speaking publicly about whatever it is, and then ultimately if they make that decision, then I think that's one thing. It's another thing when there's the sort of um, everyone flies in and hones in on a single person or a single town or a single group of high schoolers who have just experienced or talked about experiencing a thing. That's when it gets weird. Yeah, we're living in like an age of mobs online and in real life. Like that's part of the thing to remember when you're reporting about people who are just totally normal people who, you know, might not have that much experience with the media that you might be like sicking a online like troll cloud onto them. And I don't think that reporters think enough about what the implications on that level might be for the people that they write about. Is there any way in 2018 in the the media world that we live in to avoid that sort of media frenzy, though? I mean, we have examples over the past year, especially in cases of reporting on sexual harassment and abuse, where individual reporters have developed relationships with sources, earned their trust to get to tell their stories. I think of Emily Steele at The New York Times, Amy Britton at The Washington Post, or Ronan Farrow at The New Yorker. Um, But if the report is out there, as it was in this case, that there is an accusation against Kavanaugh. The name gets leaked somehow. I don't think it's reasonable to expect that you're not going to have a bunch of news outlets rushing to try and break that story. It's not like the Washington Post gets saying, actually, um, we've been in contact with her confidentially and we call dibs on this story, right? (laughs) Like, that's just not the way that the media environment works. So on one hand, I'm, I'm sympathetic to all of these reporters who went to California to try and get her on the record. But also, Nuska, I think you bring up sort of a different point, which is that the environment in which these stories are received has changed, especially online, where you do get these sort of crazy mobs of people who are going to rush to upend a normal citizen's life. Yeah, I mean, I think journalists have sort of a dual responsibility. One responsibility is toward the public and one responsibility is toward their sources. And it's just the specifics of the situation that dictate if you're protecting the source from the public or the public from the source or, you know, I think that's a constant negotiation that journalists have to to be making. Well, and often the interests of those two, the public and the source, are not aligned. Right. 
I don't disagree with any of that, um, but I do think that there is something to to your point about like how else are we supposed to do this? It's unreasonable for us to expect that a, a piece of information, a letter exists, an accusation has been made, um, for that to become public knowledge and then to expect reporters to sit on their hands. And I get that, but I also think that um, I don't have the answer to like what the alternative to that is or how we modify our behavior in moments like that to make it to, to make things better. But I think that there's, to me, there feels like sort of a resistance to even having that conversation that feels very lazy. And I think um, perhaps I don't have the answer or, mo- or perhaps people don't know right away, like, how else do we do this? But to me, the knee-jerk reaction tends to be, how else are we supposed to do this? This is our job. This is just, this is just what we do. And, and, then, and then we move on and we sort of brush past it. Um, and I think that sitting in the discomfort of like, okay, sometimes this is really inappropriate and maybe we need to talk about if there's a better way and maybe there's not or maybe nobody knows what that is and maybe the first 10 ideas will be terrible and not viable. But I think that there's some there's, there's sort of a resistance to even like having that conversation and, and, and we tend to just be like, uh, this sucks, but this is the way it's always been done because there's no other way. And I'm just like not convinced that there's not another way. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that there's something about being a journalist that you're not it's not just a normal job that you can just be like an automaton like robot going around knocking on doors or whatever like you need to be willing to submerge yourself in these ethical questions at every moment i think raising those ethical questions is part of what your piece did and why it got such a strong reaction online uh so guys thank you for coming down to talk through it thank you pete of course That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. Thanks especially to David K. Johnston for taking time out of a busy day to speak with us. And as always, to my colleagues, Noska Renner and Alex Neeson. Please check out all the great work we've got up at sujara.org, and we'll see you next week.